and welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm joined by Paul Haig. Paul is a partner with Jaffe, Rate, Hewer, and Weiss in Detroit, where he represents debtors, secured and unsecured creditors, unsecured creditors committees, asset purchasers, and trustees in insolvency proceedings nationwide. He is certified by the American Board of Certification. Paul also co-chairs ABI's Unsecured Trade Creditors Committee and is a coordinating editor for the ABI Journal. Paul earned his bachelor's degree from James Madison College at Michigan State University, his JD from Loyola University Chicago School of Law, and his LLM in bankruptcy from St. John's University School of Law in New York. Paul has co-authored a new book with Brian Resnick at Davis Polk and Brent Weisenberg at Ballard Spar entitled Credit Bidding in Bankruptcy Sales, a guide for lenders, creditors, and distressed debt investors. So we'll be talking to him today about his new ABI publication. Welcome, Paul, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, can you tell us why you wrote this book? Sure. Well, the, 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 the short answer there, I guess, is, is because the ABI asked. Always a good answer. Always a good answer to say, yes, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it originated because I had done a panel at the ABI um, Central States Bankruptcy Workshop uh, a year and a half ago, or a little over a year ago, on 363 sales, where I really focused on on the credit bidding issue as sort of one of the hot issues in, in asset sales and bankruptcy. Uh, and, um, you know, it got to a point where, where sort of everywhere you went, you'd be hearing about these cases. That I used to say that you couldn't go to a bankruptcy conference without hearing about Stern v. Marshall, but over the last year it sort of became you couldn't go to a bankruptcy conference without hearing about Fisker and Freelance Star and, and certainly the Supreme Court cases in the, in, in the Radlax trilogy. So, it's certainly a very hot topic, and one I've, I've followed, um, you know, with a lot of interest. It, 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 the, the right of a credit bid, uh, secured credit, the credit bid in a bankruptcy sale, it, it seemed to be coming up time and again in cases, whether I was representing a creditors committee and trying to challenge a credit bid um, for one reason or the other, or representing a bank and, and using a credit bid um, uh, to try and acquire assets or at least ensure that we get a fair value for the assets. It just it seemed to be coming up time and again, and there's some fascinating case law out there dealing with credit bidding in the bankruptcy context. So, uh, you know, it was a hot topic, and so again, when ABI uh, suggested maybe turning it into a book, I thought, well, you know, I'd be happy to do that, and, and started looking at it. Um, but writing a book is a is a is quite a task, and and so um, I invited a couple friends, Brian Resnick and Brent Weisenberg, to help out with it, uh, and they they did a lot of work to help make it a, a book. In addition to provide different viewpoints, because I think one of the things about credit bidding, and it's, this is demonstrated in some of the case law, is that uh, there are very different views uh, about credit bidding and its impact on a bankruptcy sale. You know, sort of depending on which hat the 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 each person is wearing, um, uh, you know, if they're representing a secured creditor vis-a-vis a creditor's committee vis-a-vis the debtor, they can have very different views of the merits of the credit bid and its impact on a sale. And so uh, I thought it was good to get sort of a well-rounded group of people who have a lot of different experiences. Brent um, has spent much of his practice representing creditor's committee and has developed a level of expertise there. Uh, I've sort of done a little bit of both um, on all sides of cases, and Brian's practices primarily representing secured creditors. And so the idea with this book was to get as well-rounded of, uh, of a view of these issues as possible 
we weren't trying to create anything that was skewed towards one side, but rather just to sort of survey the issues and and discuss some interesting cases. So um, we're very happy with how the book turned out. So who is the intended audience? Who who should be reading this book? Well, I think it's anybody who really is involved in in bankruptcy sales. Um, the book is called Credit Bidding and Bankruptcy Sales, a guide for lenders, creditors, and distressed debt investors. And so I think, you know, because of the sort of the differing views and backgrounds that our authors have, I think you get the perspective from all different sides to a bankruptcy sale, whether it be a purchaser or, or, or a debtor who's trying to figure out how a bankruptcy process uh, sale is going to work, um, you know, or, or a creditors committee and what arguments could be raised to try and challenge a credit bid right. So um, really the whole, the whole universe of people involved in bankruptcy sales, I think, is, is who our target audience uh, was here. That's, that's what we're hoping to, to do, and that's, as I said, part of the reason we got the authors that we did to, to sort of represent those different views. But I would also say it is intended to um, be sort of a useful guidebook uh, that non-lawyers can understand, because oftentimes I'll have, in, even earlier this week, I'm, I'm working on preparing a 363 sale where, where my client's going to be the stocking horse bidder, and there's a credit bid right that, um, that uh, you know, that the secured creditor there will have, and, and the client was trying to understand how that credit bid right works in bankruptcy. He's not experienced with bankruptcy at all, doesn't, hasn't ever been a, a purchaser in a 363 sale. Uh, but was trying to understand it. And the point with this book, in addition to being sort of high-level enough that uh, experienced practitioners, uh, I think, can find value here because we cover pretty much all of the credit bidding case law that's out there, whether it be under the 363K and for cause case law, some of which I'm sure we'll discuss in this, on this podcast, or, or the Radlax trilogy and, and, and credit bidding under a plan that's We've covered all the case law and really have dug into some in-depth sort of unique issues. Uh, there's a chapter on sort of practical and drafting tips related to credit bidding. Uh, so there's a whole variety of issues that we cover in here that makes, I think, a valuable resource for experienced practitioners. But again, I think it's also there are, there are, the book is, is written in a way that uh, people who are non-lawyers can still uh, read it and, and very quickly get a, a good sense of how credit bidding works in a bankruptcy sale, uh, and why it's a hot topic right now. So for those listeners who may be non-lawyers, or some uh, for listeners who may have not yet had experience in um, an asset sale situation in a bankruptcy case, can you just explain the general concept of credit bidding and what it means? Sure. Well, you know, credit bidding is certainly not something that's unique to bankruptcy law in any way. Um, it, is, it is generally recognized um, as a right of a secured creditor in, in, a, in a state law foreclosure sale is that they can bid in their indebtedness in the sale. And it, credit bidding, I think the reason the right is protected is it, it's generally sort of considered to be part of the bundle of rights the secured creditor has with respect to its collateral if it's going to be sold. It benefits secured creditors in a variety of ways. Um, certainly, the primary benefit is it allows those creditors to purchase their collateral without having to part with new funds in the bankruptcy case, because, of course, they've already parted with funds when they extended their loan. And primarily, I think the purpose of it is it protects that creditor 
from the risk that their collateral will be sold for a lowball price. So if they are concerned uh, that the debtor is going to sell its collateral, maybe they want to sell it to an insider or a white knight um, who may have uh, different incentives than getting the highest or, or best offer. They always have a check on that. They can always say, well, you know what, we're going to credit bid our debt, um, and we don't have to put up to put up new cash uh, to participate in an auction, at least up to the value or the amount of the debt that's outstanding. So uh, that's the concept of credit bidding. It's it's sort of an important check and balance um, against the debtor to ensure that their collateral is not going to be sold on the cheap. Um, it can also provide you know benefit for the debtor in that um, you know to have a true successful auction process, you want to have competition. You want to have multiple bids. You want the price to go up uh, in any auction with, with a bidding process. And uh, credit bidding, you know, is one way to do that, uh, arguably, is that uh, it creates a second bidder um, in many cases to increase the value that is ultimately paid in terms of the purchase price. So um, that's the concept of credit bidding. It's a secured creditor who has a claim can bid in, bid in its debt uh, to acquire its collateral, um, particularly if it thinks the collateral is going to be sold for less than it's worth. So the drafters of the bankruptcy code obviously felt that it was important and valuable to have credit bidding included. Um, but you've mentioned that there's been significant uh, case law and credit bidding has been in the forefront of bankruptcy cases lately. So why is it so controversial? What's going on? Yeah, well, uh, there's probably a number of reasons to that. Uh, to answer that question, but, um, you know, I think, first of all, I think that credit bidding was preserved in the bankruptcy code um, for the same reasons I just mentioned, the same reasons that exist under state law, and it was preserved because uh, it was contemplated that this was sort of the bundle of rights that a secured creditor has. So, Section 363K of the bankruptcy code expressly preserves uh, a secured creditor's credit bid right unless the court, for cause, orders otherwise. And, of course, what is cause is not a defined term in the bankruptcy code. There's sort of a case-by-case analysis as, what, as to what constitutes cause, and we can talk about some of the examples of that. But, um, uh, you know, generally it's preserved in the bankruptcy code for the same reasons, I think, that exists under state law. Uh, the other sort of concepts of credit bidding is that a secured creditor can bid the entire face value of its claim, including any deficiency. So um, the fact that Section 506 of the Bankruptcy Code, for example, will bifurcate a claim, a secured claim, uh, by the secured portion being the value of the collateral and unsecured portion for the deficiency, when you credit bid, that doesn't happen because the credit bid, in fact, sets the value of the collateral, not in a 506 a sort of bifurcation way, but what it is about collateral's worth, whatever somebody will pay for it, and a credit bid is deemed as being sort of the equivalent of cash. So, you know, credit bidding has long been a part of bankruptcy sales. It's long been um, something that is an accepted right of the secured creditor, except in those sort of unique cases where, you know, quote-unquote cause uh, is found by the court. So in recent years, though, as, as you noted, Amy, it's, it's become a much hotter issue. And I think that this reflects, 
the evolution in Chapter 11 practice and a tension that exists between uh, what I'll call old bankruptcy and new bankruptcy. Uh, in old bankruptcy, the goals of Chapter 11 traditionally were to rehabilitate a debtor and maximize the value of assets for the benefit of all creditors. And those goals were furthered in Chapter 11 by a process that allowed a business to continue to operate and pay creditors over time through a plan or conduct a sale of the enterprise as a going concern through a competitive auction process that would generate the highest return for the company's creditors. So again, as we've discussed, you know, if you're going to have that sale, the right-to-credit bid was an important check and balance against the debtor to ensure that the collateral was, was sold for a fair price. But I think the reason why it's become a hot topic more recently is because that what I just described is not really today's Chapter 11 case. Uh, what we have seen is the emergence of hedge funds and private equity groups and non-traditional lenders. And today's Chapter 11 cases are as much about acquisition and leverage as they are about reorganization. And in this context, the concept of loan-to-own has become very prevalent. And I think what you're seeing in the case law and why credit bidding is such a controversial topic is you're applying sort of an old bankruptcy concept uh, to this new bankruptcy uh, regime, uh, and there is a little bit of tension there. Um, today, credit bidding is used for strategic purposes uh, more often than not. Uh, entities purchase debt pre-petition to acquire a company. They often do it at a steep discount. That's reflected, for example, in the Fisker bankruptcy case. And these entities are not interested in ensuring a competitive auction process or a fair market value for their collateral. Rather, they understandably want to ensure that they can acquire the assets as quickly and as inexpensively as possible. So in today's bankruptcy, credit bidding is often used not as a shield by a secured creditor to protect itself, but rather as a sword. You can buy the debt, and this is loan-to-own right here. You, 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 you are serving as a lender for the purpose of, of forcing a sale and, and ultimately acquiring the assets. You know, in the case of Fisker, for example, you can buy the debt, and Fisker, the debt, I think it was $180 million of debt. It was bought at a substantial substantial discount pre-petition. Uh, and uh, then you put it into bankruptcy, and you conduct a sale, and you can credit bid. And you can credit bid not just what the collateral may actually be worth, but you can credit bid the full amount of the debt. And in Fisker, that was $180 million for what may have been or at least the debtors were suggesting was, you know, $25, $50, $75 million of collateral. And so the right to credit bid gives that secured creditor, that investor, that loan-to-own party uh, a lot of control over the sale process. So, uh, again, credit bidding being used as a uh, a sword uh, as opposed to a shield, and I think that's where the controversy comes into play. Now, I mean, I think I should note that None of this is illegal. It's all perfectly legal under the bankruptcy code. And, you know, the traditional view has been that the motivations of a creditor and the amount it paid for its debt and when are irrelevant because a party that buys uh, a secured claim uh, simply steps into the shoes of its predecessor. But um, it's 
become controversial because it, you know these these cases are becoming the norm. Obviously, 363 sales are becoming the norm in Chapter 11. And what you have a situation in, in particularly in the loan to own context is you have a loan to own creditor who arguably gets to gain all the benefits of a Chapter 11. They can pick and choose which contracts they want to assume and reject, and they get a free and clear sale order uh, approving the sale, uh, stamped by a bankruptcy judge. But they don't often leave, they often do not leave anything for other creditors in a case that is over months after it starts. They're, they're you know, typically quick cases with a quick sale. And afterwards, oftentimes, the case may very well be administratively insolvent. So, so I think that's where the tension comes from, Amy, and, and I think that's reflected in the new, new case law, particularly the, uh, the Fisker opinion and the, and the Freelance Star opinion. So did Fisker and Freelance let them do this? Are the loan-to-own creditors allowed to go ahead and credit bid the full amount of their uh, debt? They didn't. They didn't. And that's, I think, why they're so, so, so frequently discussed as such a hot topic, because in those cases, uh, both the courts, uh, Fisker was in the bankruptcy court for the District of Delaware, and Freelance Star was in the, uh, I think it's the Northern District of Virginia. Um, and in both of those cases, which were loan-to-own cases, um, the courts there limited a credit bid uh, right. Uh, in Fisker, the credit bid was limited to the amount that the secured creditor, the insider secured creditor, had paid for the collateral, and in Freelance Star, uh, the credit bid was was reduced also substantially. Uh, so they found cause to do that. And I think what's really interesting about this, Amy, is that, you know, as I, as I mentioned at the outset, 363K says that it, it preserves a credit bid right unless cause exists. And, again, what is cause is sort of defined in the case law. Uh, the case law does identify... Um, I think, you know, sort of in studying this issue, that we sort of concluded that there are maybe three or four examples of what traditionally has been found uh, to be caused. Uh, there is the off-cited footnote in the Philadelphia newspaper's uh, Third Circuit Court of Appeals opinion, um, where the court there stated that uh, Section 363K empowers bankruptcy courts to, quote, deny a lender the right to credit bid in the interest of any policy advanced by the code, such as to ensure the success of the reorganization or to foster a competitive bidding environment. So that's, that's the broadest language on cause uh, that really is out there. But um, you look beyond that footnote, and again, I think there's a couple of categories, a couple of sets of circumstances where courts have generally found cause. Um, and the first is if there is a dispute as to the validity or the amount of a creditor's claim or lien. And this makes sense because 363K only allows a credit bid for allowed secured claims. And so if there is a dispute as to whether a claim is a truly an allowed secured claim, until that dispute is resolved, the secured creditor arguably should not be able to credit bid the full amount of its claim. So the interesting issue that comes up there uh, and this is discussed in our book, is, you know, what level of a dispute with respect to a secured claim is, is sufficient to constitute uh, cause. Uh, but that's sort of the first traditional category, disputes as to the validity of the amount of a creditor's claim or lien. Uh, the second uh, example is of cause that comes up in the case law is where there is improper or inequitable conduct 
uh, by the secured creditor. And there aren't a ton of cases where courts have found this to be caused, but those cases that do exist, they are off-sited. And, um, you know, if you have improper and inequitable conduct by a secured creditor, uh, there's plenty of authority for saying that that constitutes cause to limit a credit bid. Uh, the third category that we've sort of identified is the failure of a party, a secured creditor, or the debtor to comply with court-ordered procedures. And oftentimes we're talking about bid procedures that are out there. And if you failure to comply with those orders, courts have found that that's cause to uh, limit credit bidding. And finally is the one that the creditors committee always throws up, and that is uh, when a credit bid will chill bidding and prevent a competitive auction process. And this is the argument that the creditors committees often make when they see a 363 sale that's going to be sold to a credit bidder. The assets are going to be sold to a credit bidder, being a traditional lender or a loan-to-own party. Um, and they say, look, these, these secured creditors don't have to put up real cash. They can just come in. And, in fact, if there's a large claim, perhaps a claim that's larger than the value of the assets or the, the apparent value of the assets to be sold, and they can credit bid the full amount and they want it, it can chill bidding because, uh, as any of us who have represented purchasers know, uh, the due diligence process can be time-consuming and expensive. And why get involved in that process if you know you have no chance of actually acquiring the assets because there's a secured creditor or a loan-to-own creditor who's going to credit bid and, and, and sweep in and take them regardless of, of, of what the value of the assets may be or what you can bid. So um, this concept of chilling bidding and preventing competitive auction process, which allows you to get higher and better uh, offers, uh, that's sort of the fourth, exa fourth example of cause that we've highlighted. But I would say until recently, there, you know, we were able to find sort of there's very limited authority for this. You have the Philadelphia newspaper's footnote that I already mentioned. There's some language in Collier uh, and, a, and a handful of cases which we have uh, sort of cite, we have cited in the, in the book that sort of talks about the uneven play, playing field that can be created as a result of a credit bid. Um, but really, there wasn't a ton of authority for that as cause until recently. And what's interesting about coming back to Fisker and Freelance Star is that the chilling effect of a credit bid in both cases was specifically noted by those courts as part of the right reason that cause existed in those cases to limit the, the prospective purchaser's uh, credit bid. And what's even more interesting about that is, you know, Fisker involved a case where there was no, dis no question that there was a legitimate dispute as to the validity or the amount of the secured creditor's claim. Uh, there were allegations that there was improper or inequitable conduct. There was a sales process where the purchaser came in and said, this is a melting ice cube we need to buy right away. Uh, and it turns out that that wasn't true, even though the quick sale, which was supposed to happen over the holidays back in, in 2014, even though that everybody said this has to happen right away, it didn't. So uh, my point is, as Fisker, you had all three of those sort of traditional concepts of cause that we talked about were present. And the same is true in Freelance Star. Freelance Star is sort of a perfect example of um, all the types of things that a secured creditor who wants to credit bid should not do. There was all kinds of improper conduct um, 
by the secured creditor there, including asserting liens and filing UCC-1 statements on assets that admittedly were not their assets, including deliberate efforts by the credit bidder to try and chill bidding by forcing the debtor, for example, to put on its marketing materials, FYI, in bold letters right at the top, there is a credit bid right here, and the secured creditor intends to credit bid. So, again, in both these cases, you have sort of the classic examples of cause that exists. The dispute is the validity of the claim. Same existed in Freelance Star. They, they didn't have a lien on all the assets, so there was a dispute as to the, you know, whether the, the secured creditor was fully secured and on what assets. Improper inequitable conduct, this existed in both of these cases. And nevertheless, uh, the courts in both cases went a step further to uh, talk about the chilling effect that a credit bid would have on getting a fair value for the assets, maximizing the value of the assets through an asset sale, um, the chilling effect it would have on the auction process. And I think, again, that is a reaction of the court um, and some litigants who are raising these arguments, of course, uh, to the loan-to-own situation that, that we're seeing playing out time and again and the concern that these quick sales where credit, you know, the money is going to be, the assets are going to quickly be sold to a um, party with the credit bid, right, and the case is over and there's nothing left for anybody else, that courts are looking for ways to sort of resist that and to try and get a competitive process. And, of course, it's well noted in Fisker that as a result of uh, the court's ruling there and limiting the credit bidding, there was, in fact, a competitive auction process, a very competitive auction process, um, with several three days of bidding between two bidders, 19 rounds uh, back and forth, and assets that were initially proposed to be sold for a $75 million credit bid uh, in a private sale after a, after the auction process in Fisker, they were sold for uh, over $150 million, including $126 million in cash, which created a lot of more, much more um, money for the estate. So, uh, you know, I think the court picked up on something there that, that it was concerned about, and, um, and, and, and obviously a very good result was obtained there for, for I think, all parties. So, uh, anyways, that's 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 sort of the that's those are the recent case law on cause and sort of a hot topic, uh, and and again it all comes back to this loan to own thing because you know credit bidding is being used for a very different purpose now than I think was intended and right or wrong that has um, created some concern for a lot of people who are following these cases. D- does credit bidding play a different role when assets are sold in a plan as opposed to a quick three sixty three sale? Well, it, it, it doesn't. Um, if you're going to sell assets in a, well, certainly, of course, if it's a consensual plan, you don't have a problem. But if you're going to have a cram-down plan under 1129B of the Bankruptcy Code, the right to credit bid of a secured creditor is expressly recognized there. And in the Radla, and that's the Radlack case. That's the Supreme Court opinion from, oh, I don't know, maybe five years ago now that uh, that that found that if you're going to sell assets under a bankruptcy plan in a cram-down sale, you do have to sell it under that prong of 1129B that preserves a secured creditor's right to credit bid under 363K. Uh, and so, you know, the difference between a, a sale and a 363 sale and under a bankruptcy plan, there's all kinds of other requirements that need to be met to confirm a plan. Uh, 363 sales certainly are the more in vogue type of way of, 
of selling assets in bankruptcy. But um, in either case, the credit bid right uh, does exist uh, unless, again, court finds that um, cause exists uh, otherwise uh, to limit or eliminate uh, that credit bid right. And you also go through in your book and talk about some of the practical issues that arise with credit bidding. I know you, you in your introduction, kind of started talking about those, but can you mention um, a few of these and how you see them coming up in bankruptcy cases? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, there's a chapter in the book that we have that deals with professional fees, and you see this come up from time to time. I won't say there's a lot of case law in there, but there's been some very recent case law on this. Um, you know, a lot of times an investment banker's fee, for example, is tied uh, to what the purchase price for the assets is. And if that purchase price is comes into the estate through, by way of a credit bid instead of cash, uh, it has been argued, and there is some case law out there that discusses uh, whether and to what extent a investment banker's professional fee, or success fee perhaps is what it's called in the agreement, uh, is triggered when there is a credit bid. Uh, the same sort of concept comes to play uh, for bankruptcy trustees who, under the code, are entitled to a percentage distribution of the money that is um, uh, distributed to creditors. Uh, so if a bankruptcy trustee is doing a bankruptcy sale and uh, sells assets for cash, then there's a lot of money to be distributed for creditors. But if they try and sell assets to cash, have an auction, and the winner at the auction is a secured creditor who credit bids, well, then you don't have that money flowing through the estate, and you don't have uh, that money being distributed to creditors, uh, even though maybe you end up at the same place anyways, which is the secured creditor getting paid, um, either directly by satisfaction through credit bid or uh, through receipt of the proceeds. But in that case, you don't have the money flowing through, and the question in the case law that's come up is, well, do they get to, does the trustee get its commission based on that money, um, which didn't come in, but rather the, the sale that was done to a credit bid. And there's some very interesting opinions uh, on that. And, and, and interestingly, I think, you know, the, the case law seems to reach a different result for investment bankers than it, than it does for, for trustees. So that's sort of an interesting practical issue that comes up. Uh, we have a whole chapter that was primarily put together from by Brian Resnick, who, again, um, uh, represents a lot of secured creditors, talking about drafting issues, what types of language you want in your loan documents, in your plan support agreements, in your uh, bid procedures um, that can address the types of credit bidding issues that often come up, um, um, you know, uh, either language that will encourage uh, 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 or preserve the right of credit bidding, maybe asking the debtor to acknowledge that cause doesn't exist whether that's enforceable or not, you know, is for a court to determine, of course, but you see that kind of stuff uh, in there. You have intercreditor issues. If you have loans that are, um, you know, where you have an agent serving as the agent for a number of banks in a loan transaction, you have to have draft some language to say, well, who controls the creditor right, credit bid right? Who makes that decision? Um, so, you know, it comes up a lot. Bankruptcy particularly Chapter 11, more than ever, is being used uh, primarily for the purpose of selling a company. And this credit bid right, particularly as you have all kinds of non-traditional lenders that are now in the marketplace and, and looking to buy and 
buy debt or buy assets, um, the credit bid right becomes a much uh, more relevant issue. And so we try to have a chapter that, that highlights some of the language and drafting considerations that uh, those parties might might want to be aware of uh, so that they can reach the outcome they want. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's certainly in there, but it's, uh, those, are, those are sort of the practical issues in addition to sort of what the law says in terms of um, the right to credit bid under a plan or in a 363 sale or what constitutes cause in those cases. So um, it's really a very interesting chapter. Well, I think the whole book is um, full of great advice and great information about credit bidding. And I know you and Brian and Brent really um, put a lot of work into this. And it's getting some attention. I know that um, I think Judge Gregg uh, in Michigan in the Family Christian case cited it in a footnote. Um, so that that must have uh, been a, a big win for you. Um, and we are happy that he has um, looked at the, you know, the book and is has considered it uh, and is using it. So... Yeah, you know, it was a very cool thing because that was, uh, I, I practiced in Michigan, I'm in Detroit, not in, not in Grand Rapids where Judge Gregg uh, is at. Judge Gregg and I had done a panel at the Central States, ABI Central States Conference um, the week before, and I know he was going going back to work on his opinion and he was sort of certainly thinking about these issues. He's written about these issues before, too, so I know it's a topic that's sort of close to his heart, but... Um, this opinion was a much anticipated opinion from a lot of people all over all over Michigan who are involved in this family Christian case. It's a it's a big case, uh, and and I'm not actually involved in that case, although some people in my firm were. But I knew when Judge Gregg's opinion came out because that day I got a number of emails from other people saying he studied your book. You know, <laughs> so it's a, that's a that's a good thing. And uh, you know, I mean, it, it was drafted in a way so that we hope that it'll be a nice research resource for, you know, we talked about parties who are involved in um, in, um, in in asset sales and, and practitioners, but, um, you know, any, any anytime you can provide something or write something that gets cited by a court or hopefully provide some value to the bench, that's a very nice thing, too. And uh, hopefully it won't be the last time. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks, Paul, for all your hard work on the book and for taking the time to join us today for the podcast. Thank you. If you're interested in purchasing credit bidding and bankruptcy sales, visit the ABI Bookstore at abi.org bookstore. Thank you for listening and have a great day.